Turn again to Luke chapter 4. We've read together verses 16 through 30, and I'd like to continue beginning at verse 31. Thinking of the subject, not only rejected, not dejected, as far as the viewpoint of Jesus, as far as those who rejected him like in Nazareth, someone said rejection may be final for them and fatal. You certainly see that that's the possibility that if Jesus never returned to Nazareth, his hometown again, a sad thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus does not make Nazareth his, his um, launch to his ministry. Capernaum becomes his, his uh, sending city, if you will, his new, what do we call it, his, his new base of operations. When it should have been Nazareth, when you think about it, that's where he grew up and it would have been nice have Nazareth, but Nazareth rejected him. And remember from our last message, they wanted to cast him off the, the, the uh, edge of the cliff. They, they say today that Nazareth uh, has one part of the town that's very steep, a steep cliff. So it's interesting to be able to visit that area and actually go to where Jesus was actually standing, just so, something special. That was, I think, Everyone would like to visit the Holy Land once in their lifetime, and it certainly would be a blessing. That's perhaps on our bucket list. So we pick up with verse 31. So he escaped the wrath of the Nazarite people, the the, uh, Nazareth people, his hometown. He had offended hometown pride, You remember when he spoke about the Lord bypassing Israel in the days of Elijah and Elisha, that there were many widows in the days of Elijah, but the Lord only healed or provided for one, as it were, and it was a Gentile. There were many lepers in the days of Elisha, but he only healed one. He didn't heal an Israelite. He healed Naaman the Syrian, and that was... That was an offense to their pride. And they rose up, verse 29, and thrust him out of the city and led him under the brow. It's interesting, the word is an eyebrow, literally, of the hill where their city was built. But whether or not it was a miracle, it's interesting. It says he just simply passed through the midst of them and went his way. Uh, The Lord seemed to be invisible in the midst of all those that were intent on murdering him. So he returns. It says he came down, and literally he did come down to Capernaum. I think Nazareth is 1,300 miles above sea level, and Capernaum is 700. So he did indeed come down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. They were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. And in the synagogue was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil. You see, the devil, the demons, can get into churches. We have a, some people have this seeming barrier that the devil can't get in the front door of a church. 
But we're told here the devil or demons were in the synagogue. Remember, Jesus gives us the parable of the sower. And when the word is sown, the devil can be there to snatch the seed. Where is the word sown more often than, than not? Inside churches. He had a spirit of an unclean devil. The word is daimonion. It's a demon. Technically, there's one devil with many demons. This is the word daimonion, which is the word demon. And he cried out, loud screech. Let us alone. What are we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Isn't it kind of interesting that Nazareth just thrust him out and the demons that recognize that he is from Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. When the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and heard him not. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of Jesus went out into every place of the country round about, diffused everywhere. And he arose out of the synagogue. Look at the touch of the tenderness of Jesus. He not only ministered publicly, he ministers privately. He was willing to go into homes and minister. It says that he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. So Simon Peter had a home in Capernaum. And Simon had a wife because it says he had a mother-in-law. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever. Luke says great fever, where Mark and Matthew just simply say fever. Remember, Luke is a physician. So it would be like today, the difference between a, a headache and a migraine. And they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately, notice, immediately she arose and ministered unto them. That shows the completeness of the healing. If you've ever had a migraine, and I've never had one, but I've had headaches, and I'm even tired by headaches if I've had them. And for, for those of you who I know who've had migraines, you're not only after a migraine, if, even though it may dissipate, your strength doesn't dissipate uh, easily, you don't, or your strength does not return very quickly. It says she immediately arose and ministered unto them. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him. Isn't this a sad note though? It's not just because of the busyness of the day, but they're wanting to avoid the sinister Pharisees who want to accuse them of Sabbath breaking for bringing people who had diseases and demons to Jesus. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And devils or demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. You see, these demons are fiendish. The screeches and screams that 
come from the people's mouths, have come actually from the demons themselves. Hideous beings, these fallen angels. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. When his disciples didn't yet know that, the demons knew he was the Messiah. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place, and the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him. They wanted to keep him in check. They wanted to restrain him from going any further, that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, as it were, I'm not your puppet. You don't own me. I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. Notice the, the ending of the circuit. In verses uh, 13 and 14, we read that Jesus went around the region, verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. In the last verse of the chapter 4, he preached in the synagogues of Galilee, so he's completing a circuit of preaching engagements in the cities of Galilee. John has already told us that Jesus has ministered in Judea early on. And here is a circuit, a circuit not riding preacher, a circuit walking preacher uh, in Galilee. This is a, the powerful return of Jesus from the wilderness temptations. Again, the parallel with Adam. Adam returned weakened by his temptation of the devil in the Garden of Eden. Perfect setting, temptation of the devil, uh, a sinless nature. He has someone to help him and her to help her. They have each other to, to uh, lean upon perfect setting, and yet they fell and they are weakened and fallen in their sin. Jesus has no one to help him, as it were. He's in the wilderness, as, as Mark tells us, with wild beasts and with the devil for 40 days. And he does not return fallen and weakened. We're told that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Where Adam fell, Jesus stood his ground. What a Savior. He's the second Adam from above who reinstates us in his love. Jesus stood where Adam fell. This is kind of a, a, a walking commentary in many of these incidents in the Gospels. Jesus was the circuit-walking preacher, and he taught in their synagogues, notice. It's like a video Luke is saying he was following Jesus from city to city. We would call them towns, but he was making his circuit. He was called, he is called the peripatetic preacher. The word peripatetic means walker. He was the walking preacher. Sheffy, if you've ever seen or read the book Sheffy or seen the, the film Sheffy, I would certainly recommend it. He was a circuit riding preacher in the tri-states, West Virginia, Virginia, and um, North Carolina, 
Virginia, West Virginia, and I think North Carolina. Uh, we were reading a biography of him on Route 81 south of where Route 81 and 77 to come, come together. We took Route 81 to head toward Greenville, South Carolina. And all of a sudden, Tiny was reading a biography of Robert Sheffy, and, and I see the sign that said, uh, Abingdon. And I said, whoa, that's, that's his birthplace. And you're reading his biography. So we were just passing Abingdon, uh, Virginia. And that's the birthplace of Robert Sheffy. You know, we still have circuit courts today. And that's named after the fact that our judges used to take circuits. Uh, they would ride horses from one town to the other and preside in their courts. So we still have circuit courts today, even though our judges aren't riding horses or even uh, driving vehicles. They're, uh, they're, in, they're basically stationed in one courtroom. Not always. There were also circuit physicians. Maybe when we were young, some of you know of a physician that would go from house to house. There still are a few, but very rare Circuit prophet Samuel went in circuits. We read in the Old Testament, Elisha also went in circuits. You remember he was in Bethel, leaving Bethel to go to another town when those young people mocked him for being bald and God sent two she-bears out of the woods and destroyed 42 of those young people. He was a circuit-riding prophet. Actually, we don't read him riding either. He may have been walking. But this is a preaching tour in Jerusalem or in Galilee. And we're told, for instance, in Acts chapter 10, verse 37, it says he began from Galilee. So that was really a, uh, a base of operations in that area for Jesus. And Capernaum became the actual base. And again, verse 16 says he went home where he was brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, all the gospel writers tell us that Jesus frequented the synagogues on the Sabbath day, but only Luke tells us it was his custom. And so we assume here that Luke is meaning not just now his custom was, but since the last time, Luke, Luke's the one you remember, the only one, that gives us a record of Jesus at 12 years old. So Luke is telling us that since the last time I wrote about Jesus, just chapter 2, I'm giving a, a, a video, as it were, of Jesus from the ages. What was he doing between the ages of 12 and 32? Well, he was working in the carpenter area, but he was frequenting the synagogue synagogues on the Sabbath day. Public worship was the chief and is still the chief uh, use of the Lord's day. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. If you look in chapter 18 of Acts, it says Paul, as his manner was, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Just like Psalm 92, a psalm for the Sabbath day, speaks about public worship in the morning and in the evening. That is the chief reason, the chief way of keeping the Sabbath holy. Remember our 
our, uh, our verses that we have put up used to be the verse behind me was from Leviticus. Uh, Keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. Notice how both go together. It's both Leviticus uh, 19.30 and 26.2. Twice it says, you keep the Sabbath by reverencing my sanctuary, which is a way of saying, uh, keep up public worship. But here is the only place where Jesus is actually described as a habitual Sabbath keeper. Though there are many passages, again, that speak of Jesus frequenting the synagogue or the temple itself. But here it speaks of his habit of being on the Lord's day. And we're also told the earliest description of a synagogue service. There didn't seem to be a, a, a pastor of the synagogue yet, like there was recorded in Acts 15 where James seems to be the pastor. So what they did was they invited men to read the scriptures publicly and then even to comment on it. And it's interesting here where Jesus stood up to read, but he sat down to preach. And so the position of reading seemed to be standing, but when Jesus sat down, that's when he commented on what he had read. And so we're getting a little bit of a commentary from the historian Luke about how synagogue worship uh, looked like. And it seems like, verse 17, that they challenged this visitor by handing him the scroll of Isaiah. And we can't be positive of that, but it just says he was handed the book. It's, obviously, you know it wasn't a book like we have, bound pages, but a scroll. And they handed it to Jesus, and he went almost all the way to the end when he read chapter 61, verses uh, 1 and 2. And also he backed up, and we believe he also wrote, read part of chapter 58, as we know it, verse 6. But he left off the day of the vengeance of our God in reading Isaiah 61. Not that judgment the judgment of God had not yet begun because those who perish face the judgment of God, but that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save. And so he stopped short of reading the day of the vengeance of our God. So we only read part of that verse. So there are times that we only read part of a verse and preach that part and not the rest of it. So we understand that... that uh, there are different ways in which we exposit God's word and why we stop at one portion and not at another. We need certainly the guidance of the Lord. But the key of his sermon is what I've read from Isaiah, which is hundreds of years old, has now occurred. It's happening right now, this day. The Messiah, they believed Isaiah 61 was a prophecy of the Messiah and Jesus is saying I am this Messiah and I have come to unburden people of their sin and their misery and yet the Bible tells us that they sensed, they sensed his gracious words apparently he was so warm hearted they could sense the, an attractive way that Jesus was speaking in a sense of his love in, in a sense, they could sense he was, a, he was speaking winningly 
And you're expecting that now they say, I believe, or tell me more. What must I do to be saved? But instead, they're, they're uh, distracted by the fact that he was from Nazareth. Instead of saying, tell me more, save me from my sins, they turn to each other and no doubt with, with uh, scorn. And Isn't this not Joseph's son? I mean, can you imagine how the devil can turn a heart? They just sensed his gracious words and they, they sensed that this man was winning. He came to win souls by even the way he read and explained the scriptures. And we got to beware of this, that we can, be, we can be zeroing in on the truth and focusing, and all of a sudden we're turned off by a thought that distracts us. It might be, like I said earlier, it might be a daydreaming. It might be the devil saying, who is this telling you what to say or what to do? Where we begin to focus on the, the man, the one preaching, and where he's from, and, 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 or he's younger than I am, or whatever, we, we, we're... We, we can be easily uh, distracted from listening to the word of God that's coming from the sacred desk. And so they were astonished, and as one commentator said, they were astonished, the word is they marveled, but they didn't seem to appreciate or admire what he was saying. Just like Ezekiel, Ezekiel, the Lord says, uh, they love the way you talk, Ezekiel, but their heart is far from me. They're hardened. So Ezekiel must have been a very good speaker. He must have been like Paul. Now, what distracted people from Paul apparently was perhaps an eye problem or something, but Ezekiel was a man with a golden tongue, and yet that didn't affect him. He was had a golden tongue preaching God's word, but... All they did was, was admire the way the man spoke rather than what he was saying. And the key is what is being said about from God's word needs to be taken seriously. And so there was, seemed to be a rapid transformation of the people from reception to rejection. And it doesn't take long. Notice how long it took. What is this, a couple minutes? Oh, how gracious this man is speaking. Who is this? Joseph's son. And so people began to, to whisper and, and scowl, and it, and it seemed to be contagious, like a disease. Unbelief is a contagious thing. And look how you can go from uh, listening to uh, rejecting, receiving and rejecting. The reverse is true, too. Remember this morning, the one thief on the cross was, was uh, uh, vilifying the Lord and, and he was disrespectful. But just not long after, his heart is turned and the transformation is from negative to positive. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Just earlier, perhaps not even an hour earlier, he was rejecting the Lord. Now he had received the Lord. Oh, that your heart and our hearts are tenderized by the preaching of the word and not hardened by it. Remember, the sun, the sun melts the wax. But what does it also do? It hardens the clay. And God's word is the, is the sun, is the light. 
And I trust our hearts are waxed this afternoon that we listen to God's word. But Jesus read their hearts and he basically said a prophet is without honor in his hometown. He's honored everywhere else but in his hometown. Isn't that an indictment on our hometowns? As if they think that a hometown person can't be saved or can't be useful, especially if he's just a young kid or that he was an obnoxious sinner in their lives. Not very many people can be sent back to their hometown uh, who are called to preach the gospel. But it is our task to go back to our hometown and witness. And Jesus chose to go back to Nazareth. And it wasn't easy to go back to Syracuse back in 1978, 79 in the summers. But as I can see how it's easy for us to have a unfair and unkind discrimination. But God can take a heart and change us. And we should be thankful for the word of God preached, whether it be from a hometown sinner that's been saved or a stranger. So he quotes the proverb that apparently was well known in that day, though we don't know it well. He says, physician, heal thyself. What we have heard you do in Capernaum, do here in Nazareth. So Jesus was saying, first of all, heal yourself. So they're accusing him of being a sinner in need of the gospel. And then they're saying, notice they didn't say, what we know you did in Capernaum, do here. What we heard you do. Oh, we've heard this, but did you really do it? Do it here and prove your credentials. Do it in Nazareth like we've heard you say say that you've done in Capernaum. Their hearts had turned to unbelief and an unfair cynicism of Jesus. Remove your own sin first. As if they were saying, remove the beam from your eye before you remove the splinter from ours. Save your reputation here by doing miracles that we've heard you do in Capernaum. Your miracles will prove that you're more than just Joseph's son. You're Joseph's son that's graduated. Oh, they had such scorn and unbelief. Do it now as as if they're commanding Jesus. Where's the evidence? And isn't, isn't it interesting that the same sarcasm took place at the cross? You're God's son. Come down from the cross and we'll believe that you're the Messiah, that you're God's son. The same unbelief of the Pharisees and the people a few years later at the cross is evidence here. Here is the scorn of the cross in his hometown of Nazareth. Unbelief is spelled out in deep, bold, large letters. But Jesus was under no obligation to perform miracles in his hometown or anywhere. We're undeserving of his mercy. Verses 25 to 27, he then says, look, your unbelief is just a proof that you're descendants of the unbelieving Israelites in the Old Testament. I'm going to bypass you, just like God bypassed 
the Israelite widows and the, and the Israelite lepers in the days of Elijah and Elisha. And God set his love and his grace upon the widow of Sarepta and, and the uh, captain of the army of the, of the Syrians, Naaman. And they got the point that Jesus was condemning them. He was convicting them of unbelief that they didn't deserve, that no one deserves. And so Jesus is then then taken to the edge of the cliff. They're filled with wrath. In other words, they're saying, God is for the Jews. He's not for the Gentiles. God is for the Jews. And you wonder if they were chanting something like that when they were taking Jesus to the the brow of the hill. Uh, Jesus saves, and God saves Jews and Gentiles. He saves people from all nations, from all cities, from all uh, islands of the sea. But we better not feel that we, we deserve, or our country, or America deserves the gospel any more than any other country. We don't deserve God's grace. His grace is unmerited. They were filled with wrath. He insulted town pride. And so... The Nazarites, the Nazar, Nazarethites do a satanic thing. And isn't it interesting, the devil led Jesus to the edge of a cliff and said, jump off. Now they're doing the devil's work by leading Jesus to the edge of a cliff. And instead of saying, jump off, they're going to push him off. But was it a miracle or was it just, some, just Jesus just using the, uh, the sea of robes to disguise himself and slither away and leave them alone and leave them without the gospel. One Sabbath Jesus spent in Nazareth. And the Bible says that he went to Capernaum and many Sabbaths he ministered there. But again, we have to be careful to think that Capernaum deserved the gospel any more than Nazareth. You remember Jesus says later, recorded in Matthew 11, Woe unto you Capernaum! For if the things that have been done here were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago in dust and ashes. Oh, we would be grateful that God spoke long enough to break our hard hearts, to melt us, that God didn't bypass us. How many times did we reject the gospel? How many times did you reject the gospel before you were saved? Did not we deserve for Jesus just to to brush the dust off the feet that he stepped on near us and never never come back again? Man was at my locker in high school opening the Bible and I was embarrassed and I rebuked him. And then I didn't receive the gospel again. He tried two or three or four times. And then the man picking me up hitchhiking. And I didn't receive the gospel after I picked up, I I received a tract from him. I deserved for Jesus to leave me behind. Oh, we should cry. It wasn't one of the hymns we should be singing today. And it is. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Oh, there are souls that desperately in the gospel now 
They may not have tomorrow to receive it. A miraculous escape, you will. Well, here's the only miracle he performed, as it were, in, in Nazareth. The miracle of getting out of, their, out of their sight. The miracle of leaving them behind. He could not do many mighty things there. Rejection could become final and fatal. You and I are not promised another opportunity. There are people that have heard the gospel in churches today for the last time. It may not be that they're going to die tomorrow, but it may be they never hear the gospel again. God leaves them behind. Some believe that Jesus did not visit, visit Nazareth again. But there are others that say that that occurrence when his, parent, his mother and his brothers and his sisters came to him while he was preaching and tried to pry him away from the crowd that may have been his second but final time in Nazareth. But we know this, that Jesus only visited that we can tell in the scriptures once or twice to his hometown. And that was it. That was it. Oh, don't pass this by, Lord. Come back again and again and again. Don't leave me unbelieving. So he goes to Capernaum, and it says, On the Sabbath days he was preaching. One Sabbath in Nazareth, but many in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, many miracles that he did made them accountable too. Thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. Hell was much lower even than Capernaum. Literally. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. Does that not tell you something about election? If God wanted Sodom and Gomorrah to be saved, he could have brought more miracles and he could have Converted them. We all deserve his wrath. Any of us that are saved are from a dirty lump, as that preacher said in Virginia last week. They were astonished too, like in Nazareth. But yet is this again no admiration and no appreciation of his ministry? It says they were astonished at his doctrine. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say just his words or it says they were astonished at his doctrine. Who says that doctrine doesn't matter? It does say they wondered at his gracious words, verse 22. But here in 32, they're astonished at his doctrine. What Jesus taught, verse 32, the content of it. They were astonished at his doctrine. Doctrine should, should bless us. The content of Scripture should be very important to us. Yes, the They were impressed on how Jesus taught. He taught graciously. And God's word should be taught and witnessed and preached with grace in our hearts, with grace upon our lips. We should never be uh, like, we should never thrash. We should never uh, be unkind and vicious in the way that we preach. They were impressed on how he preached. They said that he preached with authority and with power. See the two things that it mentions? With authority and with power. They're two different things. Authority is with right. Power is with might. 
Jesus spoke with authority in the sense that he had the right to preach. He was called of God. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And you and I as believers have the right to witness. Go ye into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. We have the right to witness. But do we have the might as Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit? Oh, for we know we have the right, but we need the might. We need power from God. Oh, that people would sense the presence of God and the power of his word that we bring forth. But I don't want us to miss, they were impressed on what Jesus taught. Oh, the, the doctrine of the Lord, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of heaven, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of angels. All these are truths to live by and to die by. What they were used to is that the rabbis never said anything that, that, they, that they didn't quote from other rabbis. It was always an endless quotation of rabbis. That's not how Jesus preached. He was quote, quoting scripture, 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 not rabbis and rabbis and rabbis. He spoke with authority and power from God. Verse 33, here is Christ meeting Antichrist. Christ is meeting Antichrist. And in the synagogue, notice, not outside, in the street, there, in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil. Isn't it interesting, the redundancy? The devils, the demons are unclean. What does it mean, an unclean devil? It, does it mean the demons are unclean and that they're sinners? Or does it mean the demons produce uncleanness? As if the people that they, they filled were also uh, sinners, but also that they made them into disheveled and, and unpleasant-looking people, as often it, it, can't, it comes to pass when a demon is, um, is filling a man. This is almost out of charge. So we find these hideous demons, they're shrieking and screaming, as they have a sudden contact with Jesus. I mean, isn't this what a great inference of who Christ is and the power of Christ in that the demon, when they meet the Savior, know they've met the Son of God and they've met the Messiah. They're terrified of Jesus. They give a diabolical speech. A.T. Robertson says, verse 34, let us alone, they're afraid of him. In other words, they're saying, what are we to do with you? Are you now come to destroy us? Why are you meddling us now, meddling with us now? We know our portion is in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. But they're afraid that Jesus is going to cast them into hell seemingly prematurely. They even call him Jesus of Nazareth. They know him from the beginning. They're aware of his early life. They're the ones that know as well that Jesus lived a sinless life. He's the Holy One of God. The description of being a godly one. God's one. This is what James tells us in chapter 2 of his book in verse 19. 
the demons believe and tremble. You see, it's not just that you speak the truth. Do you believe the truth? The devil spoke scripture. The demons are speaking the truth. You're the Holy One of God. You're the Messiah. You're Jesus of Nazareth. So it's not just that you know the truth. Do you believe the truth? That's the key. There are many people in hell that knew the truth. But there's no one in hell that was a believing one, saved, born again. There are no empty mansions in heaven. So here is Jesus, the Christ, meeting Antichrist and his minions. And it's the devil and his demons that are afraid of the Savior. But here they are in a church service meeting. We know that the Bible teaches of angels that are in our midst. But may we not do the devil a service and let him steal the seed from our hearts or make us forget what we've heard. Like the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things. And may we not have the word choked by our worldliness. And so Jesus meets and muzzles the demon. He rebuked him. He should not have possessed the man. He told him to say no more. Hold thy peace. And he said, come out of the man. Goodbye. It's, it's over with. Notice the demonic rebellion. Even though he leaves the man, he doesn't do so until he throws him down, as it were. It's a violent flinging of the man down to the ground as if this demon is going to give him one last lash, one last uh, backhand, as it were. But the man was not injured, Luke notices. Jesus had the upper hand. It was the demon that left with his tail between his legs. And so it is with the devil. Luke remembers a physician, and he said there was no injury to this man. The demon obeyed Jesus. He came out of him. Indeed, verse 36, what authority and power, what right and what might that Jesus had. And no wonder it tells us in verse 37, a rumor, an echo, like the roar of the waves on the shore went out everywhere, a resounding influence of Jesus, that he was the Son of God and the Savior, sinners and the Christ, who defeats Antichrist. He had power over the spirits. I'm going to close at this point uh, to see that Jesus had power over every realm. He had power over the spirits. We're going to see he had power over bodily infirmities. He had power over physical infirmities, spiritual infirmities, and mental infirmities. The Lord Jesus Christ was not limited. He was the limitless, infinite, powerful Savior, the Son of God. So we should know that Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.
What a Savior. He was rejected, but he wasn't dejected. He had a work to do. He had a people to save, and no one could stop him. He was, he was relentless. The momentum of Jesus was powerful, and he was not going to finish until he finished the work of the cross and saved many sinners and went to heaven. He's gone to heaven to administer power to his people, to be witnesses, to see his elect all brought You are real. You are the you are the, the son of a virgin. Lord, you are the son of God. You are God manifest in the flesh. That these are accurate records of your mighty acts. We have witnesses, many records, many pages of things that you said and things that you did. Eyewitnesses. Oh Lord Jesus, please don't pass us by. We pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and continue to visit this church. Don't write a goodbye over us, Lord. We pray that you would use us to spread your fame and that time after time after time when we gather together that you would be in our midst, that you would be our, 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 our Lord and our God. You would be the focus of our attention. So forgive us our sins. Keep us from falling. We pray that you would speak to us in your word day after day this week, that we would go in the strength of the Lord and the word that we've heard today. We pray that there would be signs that accompany and follow the ministry of your word. Hear our prayers and pray for us, Lord, and go with us. In your name we pray, amen. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. On others thou art calling. Do not pass me by. Hymn number 345.